You are listening to Go Full Crypto. I'm your host, Mugakshi Palway. In this episode, we're going to explore how Bitcoin gained its value, how its value is determined, as well as the philosophy behind Bitcoin. Before we begin, we'd love for you to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast so that more people can understand and learn from this content. Let's begin. Keegan, in the last episode, you talked about how you got rid of $60,000 of your student debt because you made some smart investment choices and majorly due to Bitcoin. And then you mentioned this one um, quote, which was, you came for the gains, but you stayed for the philosophy. That's right. I want to disseminate that. So you came for the gains. What gains did you recognize in the first place? Uh, for you to make that decision to invest in Bitcoin. Right. Well, from where Bitcoin started, a value of zero, uh, I recognized a couple of cycles that it went through up until that t- the time where I decided to invest in 2015. It had gone through a couple of really aggressive gains periods and then moderate losses. So it, it came from a value of less than a penny and then shot up to about 10 bucks and then decreased to a dollar then shot up to 100, decreased to 50 bucks, shot up to 1,000. And that was about the time that I started to uh, look into and invest in Bitcoin and okay. recognize the cycles. So, well, so during your research, did you find uh, maybe a significant event where Bitcoin gained its value? Indeed, yeah. So Bitcoin gained its value, more or less, it's, it's considered to be Bitcoin Pizza Day. And okay. that's May 22nd. 2010. Mm-hmm. And that was the day where two people on the internet decided to engage in a mutually beneficial transaction. One person said, hey, if someone orders me two large Papa John pizzas to my house, I will send them 10,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> this is in 2010, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that's about $30 worth of pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. Terrible trade at the time because really Bitcoin had no value at all. And so one person was getting this really weird, arbitrary 10,000 digital coins, and the other person was getting two large pizzas. And so that's a pretty good deal for the piece who, person who got the pizzas. Right, but that's where it was determined that 10,000 Bitcoin was somewhat equivalent to around 30 US dollars. That's right. And right. so the implications of that are much larger. It wasn't just, okay, that's a mutually beneficial exchange. It's actually the start of where Bitcoin got its value and the start of the massive amount of speculation that took place after that. Okay, so Bitcoin had been around since 2009, yeah. uh, for all of 2009, but it was really in 2010, May 22nd, when it had some sort of tangible value associated to uh, with um, like government money. Yeah, and it's because okay. people started wanted to trade it for a real-world good. Okay, Yeah. awesome. So in order for you, so you recognized these cycles and you, that's one of the aspects why you wanted to, you came for the gains. Right. Um, how did you convince yourself uh, where Bitcoin gets its value from? Right. So in my opinion, Bitcoin gets its value in two ways. One, from the utility. And we can talk a little bit about that later. Just the things that it does that is better than the forms of money we have available to us now. I call that the utility of Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. I think that... Bitcoin gets some value from that, but mostly Bitcoin gets its value from speculation. It gets it from all the people around the world that use it. And right now there's about 1% of the population that's in the world of cryptocurrency that either has it, has owned it, bought it, uses it on a regular basis. So it's about 100 million people. 
That's awesome. So one <laughs> percent of the entire population of the world decides what the value of Bitcoin is today. That's right. And that can change as well. Yeah, and it's not like they agree all the time either, right? right. Bitcoin is highly volatile because that one percent of the population essentially can't agree on what the price is. And that's why you see Bitcoin shoot up and then back down in a matter of a day. So you've raised a very interesting point here. It is highly volatile, this asset. That's right. What convinced you to stay in the investment when you knew that it was a highly volatile asset? Well, I did see my banking advisor around the time of 2015. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, in the long run, pretty much all investments in, in stock or commodities will will, will uh, rise. And okay, I applied that theory or applied that philosophy of looking at investments to Bitcoin. And because I saw the long-term potential of Bitcoin, I also saw that, okay, this $500, that's when I bought my Bitcoin. I bought my first Bitcoin at $500. Uh, after that, I was like, okay, where is this going to go? Where is the potential for this? And for me, it was worth the risk. Okay. So you invested anyway, because you saw potential in uh, receiving really large gains. And I would say it almost paid off in 2017. Totally paid off. <laughs> because your investment in Bitcoin helped you um, pay off a majority of your student debt. That's right. Okay, so around what time did you realize that the philosophy of Bitcoin was worth um, diving into? Yeah, so this didn't happen until 2018, after the bubble popped. Okay. And that's because I got really caught up. I'm totally guilty of uh, getting caught in the FOMO or the fear of missing out right. on the 2017 gains. So I had a good chunk of Bitcoin in 2016, but I diversified way further than I needed to in 2017 because of all the, the, the new cryptocurrencies that were out there. It's like basically shiny object syndrome, right? I got right. caught by a lot of exciting ideas and projects. Uh, and it wasn't until all those projects failed that I decided to take a second look at what made Bitcoin special. And that made me uh, or forced me to... Uh, look at the philosophies behind Bitcoin. Interesting. So it was the failure of your other investments that propelled you into looking further into the one that didn't fail. That's right. Okay. But, well, you know, Bitcoin did <laughs> depreciate in value quite a bit after the bubble popped. Right. But that's nothing new for Bitcoin, right? Because after massive gains, Bitcoin goes... Uh, and, and has moderate losses. Right. right. So it was right in line with where you thought it would be. Exactly. All right. So we're in 2018 now. You've decided to dive deeper into what Bitcoin really stands for, its philosophy. What was the first thing that struck you as, hey, this is this is different. I want to know more about it. It was the finite amount of Bitcoin. OK. It, it was the fact that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Why was that mind blowing to you? Because was it mind blowing to you? It was mind blowing to me. Yes. Okay. And the reason being is that it works completely opposite to how every other world currency works. Okay. At least the world currencies that are provided by the government. Every world currency has an uncapped amount of it that can exist. Right. right? And so we saw this firsthand in 2020 when uh, many world governments printed lots and lots of new money, where Bitcoin, it can't do that. It, there is a finite amount of them, and there's nothing that any human can do to change that. And that fact is very enthralling. Cool. You said it can't do that. Correct. Can you elaborate more on why it can't do that? Right. It's because there is a number of people 
on the planet that are running the code base. And in order for that number to change, uh, all of them would have to agree at the same time to change that number. Right. I love this collaborative aspect of running, you know, the Bitcoin network because it's it's everyone together or not at all. Yeah. Okay. And when I say a number of people, we're talking about tens of thousands, right? So tens of thousand people spread across every country in the world uh, speaking a ton of different languages are running the Bitcoin network. Yeah. And it that's an amazing fact. It's it's a, it's a community of, uh, of people all around the world. It's, it's really amazing. And you're not going to have those people all agree at the same time to raise the amount of Bitcoin that there are in the system. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so 21 million cap. That was the first thing that was striking to you and it sent you down a rabbit hole of learning more about the philosophy of Bitcoin. That's right. What was the second thing that you noticed and you were like, okay, cool, this is getting way more interesting? Uh, the second thing is that the Bitcoin network is completely unbiased with who it provides access to. So we constantly hear about the hierarchy, right? And all the money flowing to the top and to the riches. Uh, but what Bitcoin does is provides completely unbiased access to everyone. There is no hierarchy. It's completely flat. Bitcoin does not discriminate against anyone. And so it's, it's a really ideal currency to be uh, used by the world population. Uh, can you elaborate on the first part of what you, you said? Because um, I don't quite follow. The unbiased access part? Uh, well, yeah. And you, you talked about how riches um, are hierarchically distributed in a way. Um, but Bitcoin is flat in that, that aspect. Right. So what I mean is if I'm Bill Gates and I walk into a bank, then I'm going to get priority access over the regular Joe or Jane that walks into a bank. Right. right. Simply because Bill Gates has billions of dollars, that bank will place a higher value on giving Bill Gates better service. Okay. But Bitcoin Network doesn't do that. Bitcoin Network looks at an address and it, does, it can't tell if that's Bill Gates' addresses or not. And it looks at Joe and Jane's address and it treats them exactly the same. And so it does not discriminate based on someone who's already rich or someone who is, you know, moderately well off or someone who is very poor. Right. So it provides the same service based no matter who you are. And that is a correct monetary system, in my opinion. Right now, we have a monetary system that favors the rich instead of supporting the poor. And I like that. I like that in uh, about the Bitcoin network. Right. <laughs> just um, when you said that when it, when big Bill Gates walks into a bank, I just got a thought um, that it was really funny. And I thought to myself, would Bill Gates really even need to go to a bank? Does Bill uh, Gates <laughs> actually go to a bank? I'm not sure. <laughs> Does he need to? But, you know, if the same rules apply for banks in the United States, where if in order for you to do a domestic or wire transfer and there's limits and you need to be there in person, maybe he does. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe it doesn't, but I thought it was really funny that, um, yeah, anyway, that was a, that was a side. Okay, cool. So unbiased access right. was the second thing that really um, wanted you to, was had it convinced you at this point that, okay, I, I'm with, I'm, I'm on board with Bitcoin's philosophy? Well, it gave me uh, confidence that Bitcoin would succeed far into the future. Uh, because of developing nations, I saw it as a, a better currency for developing nations, not so much for uh, nations that are already, de- already developed. Like in Canada, we have a great banking system, so we basically have no reason to adopt Bitcoin as a money, 
but we have, we have reasons to adopt it as an investment. But countries where the, uh, the currencies have been devalued and gone through hyperinflation, they actually have a really good reason uh, to adopt Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies as, a, uh, as an actual money for day-to-day -day use. Okay. Well, just to add on your point of in Canada, we have a great banking system. I think compared to developing countries, yes, we do because we have access to capital, access to financial services. But I still believe that the financial infrastructure upon which our current banking system um, lies on is outdated and archaic. Still tons <laughs> of problems. It's way better than what yeah. other people have, but there's, there's still there's tons no of shortage for improvement. Yes. All right. Okay. So what was the next thing? Are we, you, you were, you're convinced at this point? Yeah. So there's a total of four things. The next thing is the founder of okay. Bitcoin. Okay. And this is the first time that we're introducing this uh, this entity's name on the podcast. Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto. So this is an anonymous person or group of people. And the reason why we say that is because no one actually knows the identity. This is a, uh, an entity that conducted themselves solely on the internet. No one has had firsthand contact with this person or group. And so we really don't know who the founder of Bitcoin is. And that's unique among all cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency where the founder is not known. You know, I have a question on, on that for you. Why did you think to trust um, Satoshi Nakamoto not knowing who they are um, when you were grown up, you grew up and raised around always knowing who the face behind yeah. any entity is? Yeah, don't talk to strangers, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, how, what made you trust the, this currency, the system, when you didn't know who it was? There's a couple of factors that uh, increased the trust in who Satoshi Nakamoto was. And one of the main... Uh, so the first one is that on the first block of the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, Satoshi essentially stated the reason for the Bitcoin blockchain. It was in response to the two, uh, 2008 financial crash. Uh, on the first block, a message was encrusted or etched into the block, mm -hmm. and it was the um, the cover of the Times uh, article. It said uh, that the the chancellor's on the second bailout uh, for the banks. Break a second bailout, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Satoshi, this gave the impression to people that Satoshi was feeling very disenfranchised by the state of the economic system of the world. And that's, that's okay, cool. I can relate to who uh, this person is anonymous or a group of people is anonymous, yet I can still relate to the values that we think that they have. And the second reason why I trust Satoshi is because Satoshi's never touched their own wallet. So Satoshi owns about 5% of the supply of Bitcoin. So more or less about a million Bitcoin is in Satoshi Nakamoto's addresses, <laughs> but they've never touched it. Satoshi's the richest Bitcoin owner in the world. They're a multi-billionaire and they've never touched a penny or a single unit of Bitcoin. But how, how does that instill trust? Uh, because the, uh, that's, again, a unique aspect for Bitcoin. No other cryptocurrency founder ever has not touched their, their holdings. So re even Vitalik Buterin, uh, the co-founder of Ethereum, the second largest blockchain in the world, or second largest cryptocurrency, uh, has touched their, their holdings. And it, it just goes to show that Satoshi has uh, 
a uh, an invested interest in seeing the project succeed, not in the riches that this could have brought to this person. That's an interesting point you bring up, Keegan, because what if this year or next year, in the next five years, the money from that wallet is moved out, the Bitcoin from that wallet is used for something? How, will that change the, how much you trust Bitcoin, how much you trust Satoshi? I actually think it would. It would change how much I trust Bitcoin. So it is a bit of a leap of faith because any, at any point in time, Satoshi could move their Bitcoin and sell it on an open market and and uh, and, and do something detrimental to Bitcoin. Uh, Why would it do something detrimental to Bitcoin? Well, just that massive influx of Bitcoin that's never been in circulation. Oh, that's if they use the million Bitcoin that they have in the, in the wallet. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly right. Yeah. So Satoshi. But a little bit is fine. <laughs> well, <laughs> well it, even if a little bit, I think it would put enough panic in the market to uh, to certainly cause some interesting conversations to happen. Mm. Uh, but we really actually don't know if Satoshi is even alive still, because Satoshi dropped off of the face of the earth in 2012, and we haven't really heard contact from Satoshi since then. Right, because they were only alive on platforms on. Uh... On the internet. On the internet. What what are those? What forums? Forums. Yes, that's what. <laughs> okay, wonderful. So you're convinced at this point. This is the philosophy. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was um, the finite number of Bitcoin mm-hmm. that kind of um, sent you down this rabbit hole, and then you came across unbiased access. And for you, that was very interesting. And the third thing was Satoshi Nakamoto and their story and their reasons for starting the Bitcoin network, starting this you know currency for the world. You're convinced at this point that, okay, Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency of the future. I want to invest in this wholly and fully. Yeah, uh, yeah, more or less. Uh, okay. th- those three aspects that you just mentioned, the finite number, the unbiased access, and uh, you know the myth of Satoshi Nakamoto, they, they all culminate into uh, essentially a label for Bitcoin. And one label for Bitcoin is the people's currency. Okay. Right. So since it's unbiased and since Satoshi Nakamoto has no face, Satoshi Nakamoto could be any one of us. Right. So there's a kind of a philosophical aspect to the anonymity of Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, it's obviously not one of us. You know what I mean? Right. It's not you, Murgakshi Powell, or me, Keegan Francis. But in a sense, it could be. Right, because we don't know the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. Yeah, I've seen a meme on the internet go around where um, this, this one person asks, "Who is that? Satoshi Nakamoto?" You know, and then the the answer is, "You are Satoshi Nakamoto." Um, but the implication is that by holding Bitcoin, by believing in in its philosophy, by maintaining the network, you are part of this global system. Um, because you believe in its philosophy and you believe what it stands for. So Satoshi Nakamoto, because we don't know who they are, it's really given everyone who is currently holding that network and is investing in Bitcoin, it gives them the opportunity to be Satoshi Nakamoto because they're essentially moving the network forward. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really important not to... Uh, try to identify Satoshi as a particular demographic or or gender or or anything like that. It's important to keep that figurehead for Bitcoin as anonymous and as ambiguous as possible so that Bitcoin appeals to the, the, the most exactly everyone. It's very interesting you say that because I've certainly read many articles where Satoshi Nakamoto is identified as a he. As a singular he. As a singular he. Yeah. And um, could just be as likely that it's a like a super crew of women. 
yes, or a bunch of people of all genders. We don't know that. And we it's, don't know. it's not nice to assume because they wanted to stay anonymous and we should maintain their anonymity, anonymity by not identifying them with any, any gender. That's right. Yeah, awesome. That's awesome, Keegan. This is when you're <laughs> wholly convinced that the Bitcoin philosophy is, um, is something to believe in and adopt. That's right. Yeah, it's because money connects every single person on the planet. It's actually the, one of the things that every single person on the planet has in common with one another. We all use money. We just use the money that is provided to us by the government. And instead of doing that, we could adopt an independent currency, a cryptocurrency that is uh, without borders and without limits and not going to be restricted or able to be restricted by any one government. That is really what Bitcoin's all about. It's about the people of the world coming together and using a people's currency for the betterment of society. Mm -hmm. We want to tackle climate change and big issues. Well, let's put our Bitcoin together so we can actually pay for it. Because apparently the government's not interested in putting their money, our taxpayer dollars, into climate change efforts. And that's, you know, this is just one example of, of how bit people could come together and, uh, and achieve a common good. Wonderful. Um, one of the examples that we use in a lot of our presentations has been a comparison to how the internet brought the world closer together um, in terms of sharing information and communicating with one another. And in, in that sense, cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin, has brought the world closer together to gaining access to wealth itself. Yes. A global wealth instead of the wealth that is confined to the borders that we are right now in. That's right. That's yeah. awesome. So if we were to summarize all of the things that we covered, um, we wanted to... Let's recap on how Bitcoin gained its value. Bitcoin gained its value from Pizza, pizza Day. Day, May 22nd. Yeah, and mm -hmm. since then it's been a speculative asset. Mm -hmm. Okay, and how the value of Bitcoin is determined by... The amount of people or the people that are using at any one point in time. Okay, wonderful. And um, this, the philosophy of Bitcoin. What is the philosophy of Bitcoin? Uh, in a nutshell, the philosophy of Bitcoin is that it's the people's currency. Okay, cool. That, that was right at the tip of my tongue and I <laughs> stopped myself from saying it. Awesome. Well, in this episode, we have covered, um, I would say we've only scratched the surface of Bitcoin because there's so much more there to really it. There really is. And one thing that we get asked a lot again is, what is mining? And that's something that we, <laughs> we alluded to in a very indirect sense when we said that the whole world... Um, collaborates together um, to bring Bitcoin into circulation and that's especially the job of the miners. We will cover that in a later episode because it does deserve an entire episode. In the next episode we're going to cover scams. Scams that have taken place in the past um, when relating to Bitcoin as well as the scam that took place just last week. Twitter was hacked, a lot of famous personalities, Twitter accounts automatically tweeted this Bitcoin address. And um, we want, really want to bring attention and awareness to how this was not a cryptocurrency scam. It was a Twitter hack, but unfortunately, cryptocurrency was used to fool people into sending money to a fraudulent address. All right. Before you go, we do want to let you know that this Wednesday, July 22nd, 7 p.m. ADT, Keegan and I will be hosting um, a cryptocurrency mastermind. And you can find more information on our website, gofullcrypto.com forward slash learn if you wanted to participate in it. 
Hope to see you there. Stay tuned, everyone.